Hello out there in podcast land, Noah Nelson here with episode four of No Persinium, a show about immersive and interactive theater and its ilk. Can you believe it's been a month of these things already? Today on the show, Jennifer Chang, one of the founders of Chalk Repertory Theater, joins me for the first of a two-part interview. Chalk Rep has a special place here in the Los Angeles theater scene. They've been doing site-responsive work for over half a decade now all the while looking to carve out something special with the way they handle the acting side of the equation. Jennifer and I get into that, diversity in casting, and a hell of a lot more over the next couple of episodes. But first, here's what's happening in the news. Our own local L.A. correspondent, Abel Horwitz, has done a review of Dump Site, a production of Seattle Immersive, a horror production, but not the kind of horror you might be thinking when you think of immersive. Uh, Abel's piece is up on our Medium collection. That's at medium.com slash noprosinium. It's what we're featuring right now over there. Down here in L.A., the Speakeasy Society's The Quick and the Dead opens this weekend in Pasadena, while Chalk Rep's Diet of Worms takes its first bows next week. Staying here in L.A. for a moment, the Hollywood Fringe is coming this next month, and two of the creative forces behind the popular Lost Moon radio show are doing pop-up riffs on Hamlet in a van in the aptly titled Hamlet Mobile. The show is free, and to find out where it's appearing next, follow it, follow at Hamlet Mobile on Twitter. Over in San Francisco, the site responsive show on Dean, which takes place at the Sutro Baths, has been extended for another weekend this June. While in New York, our own Zay Amsbury is keeping an eye on Figment, the public art festival on Governor's Island, which takes place on June 6th and 7th. For all these listings and more, check out the latest show announcements in your local No Proscenium newsletter. And now, on with this show. I always do like a, a formal open before uh, the, the so then we kind of do this, this rolling fall into it. Uh, but, but so everyone who knows your voice, Jen, can you like, uh, identify yourself and, and give, give whatever title you feel like going right. by today? Hi, I'm Jennifer Chang. Um, I am an, a director, actor, producer sometimes writer. Um, I am the current artistic producing director of Chalk Repertory Theater, and um, part of the founding members, I want to say founder, because <laughs> it was my crazy idea, um, actually, to start the company, and I got my friends <laughs> to do this with me, and then we formed the Artistic circle, so they like to say that it's all your fault that we're here. <laughs> well, that's, that's good. <laughs> Cheers for owning up Cheers. to being all your fault. Yeah. Um, we're warning to everyone: we're drinking Stumptown Cold Brew. Jennifer would yes. have caffeine unless I drink it too, and this is my third cup. So. I'm a pusher. So, yeah. And then halfway oh, through I'm this, <laughs> halfway through this interview, I'm sure we will be speaking very, very quickly. Oh, it's gonna be faster than that. This is this is this is cup number three. Um, so. For for those out there in the listening audience who, who might not be familiar with chalk, I wonder if you can kind of give give the elevator pitch, and then I've I'm really curious about where you guys come from. And and for this is the first part, we're going to talk about that. And I know Jennifer has some questions for me, so we'll do that. And then in part two, we're going to talk about 
the upcoming show that she's directing for Chalk, Diet of Worms. So that's that's to give everyone a sense of what you're hearing in this episode. Where we're going. Yes. Roadmap, so to speak. Um, well, Chalk Repertory Theater is a site-specific site theater company, and part of where we came up with the um, name for it, Chalk, is that Chalk can be, you know, drawn, and it can create, you know, instantly some sort of space or architecture, um, but can be easily erased, mm. you know, and you'd never know that anyone was there. Um, and that pretty much, I think, <laughs> has been the case with all of our shows where we come in, you know, we put on a show, we take over a space, and then, you know, the next day you'd never know that anyone had ever been there. Yeah. Um, and we started, you know, the company, as far as, you know, our meetings and talking about what we wanted to do that happened in the fall of 2008 but we formally started with the <clears throat> with the play three sisters in 2009 at the masonic um lodge the historic masonic lodge of hollywood forever cemetery and that was the first time that they'd done anything like that there and that's a great space you guys mm -hmm. did um readings of uncle vanya and another Chekhov, cherry orchard. and cherry orchard mm -hmm. and uh it, it's also because it's it is a masonic lodge so it's got that those long row of seats along the side creating this like it's a the different gauntlet, space yes. yeah the gauntlet yeah. the gauntlet space it's so it's such a different space than most people are used to being in and i know they do all kinds of shows in there now like yeah. music but, yeah it's gotten to be a really popular venue but at yeah. the time um <clears throat> this is our origin story is that i had always wanted to do three sisters and um you know i'm an actor of color um, I was concerned that I would not get a chance to be considered because, mm. you know, the sisters have to look alike. You still have to tell the story of a family. Um, and so I, I did a reading in my house here in Los Feliz and, um, and, you know, with a bunch of friends. And I was thinking, you know, there are all these people I know who are so talented, who went to grad school, who went to some of the top, you know, training um, institutes of acting in the country and here they are hanging out you know waiting until the next tv job calls and yeah it's like why aren't we doing anything and i know that there are a lot of theater companies that started this way and it's sort of you know well who who do you know what kind of um product is it going to be what kind of experience am i going to have and you really want to be doing it with your friends yeah right I mean, that's like, so that's like the, started. yeah, that's like the roots of it all. I mean, I feel like every good theater company starts that way. You know, it's not, <laughs> it's not some egomaniac's desire. It's like, there is some talent just moldering on the yeah, shelf here. And like, absolutely. we got to do something about this. Yes. Yes. And so it was great. You know, we were in my living room. There was 14 of us. We just sat around and read these parts and we're like, oh, Actually, we might have something here, you know. Um, but I thought, well, that's a total pipe dream. That's never going to happen. And it ha just so happened that uh, there was a weekend that I got invited by a friend to go see a movie at Hollywood Forever Cemetery and got to be in the VIP section. It was just the strange, you know, kismet, fate, whatever. And I happened to meet the executive vice president of the cemetery, and then he gave us a tour of the cemetery, including the Masonic Lodge that had just been recently restored. And I said, I have a play for you for this space. Oh, and goodness. that's sort of how it started. <laughs> I, I have so many questions about that. Um, 
about that space. So let me, I'm going to make a note and come back to the cemetery uh, for, for later. Um, you could have, from there, though, you, you know, you could have gone and done traditional staging. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the Masonic Lodge, you know, it, it, it offers itself easily to a kind of quasi-in-the-round or, I mean, I've, I've seen more than one show where you've got audience on either side. It's not quite in the round. I almost want to say that's like, it's NFL seating, right? You know, it's like, it's yeah, football yeah. seating. Um, but you, the company has experimented in a lot of, a lot of different flavors mm. of site specific. Right. Um, I saw your uh, Lady Windermere's fan, for instance, at the Clark Library. And you, in that show, you use multiple spaces in that venue mm-hmm. so the audience winds up shifting around they're still in a for the most part in a relationship of audience and performers right. but it it feels well it is tailored to the space you're responding to the space that you have to use but it's also incredibly appropriate because you're doing an Oscar Wilde play at like the largest collection of Oscar Wilde in the world in the world <laughs> which just so happens to be randomly in South LA you're just yeah. like yeah yeah, it's, it's, and it's near USC, but it's controlled by UCLA. It's like yeah. the most unexpected <laughs> fact in the world. And it's free to visit at any point by anybody. Yeah. Know, so. Yeah. Um, so wh- why why go the route of site-specific? Why, why apply yes. that particular well, route? Well, I mean, as I was doing here, I moved here, you know, to pursue, let's not lie or be in denial about what the industry is here in Los Angeles. <laughs> and, um, and then, but of course, you know, as an actor, um, theater is just, you know, where you have your roots, where you have so much creative control, where you feel like you can really breathe and be, you know? So it's like, how do I practice that? How do, how did then, you know, if I am really going to start this journey of creating a company, how do I make it make sense in, or how do we make it make sense in um, a town that's really about producing film and TV? And how do you make, so how then do you make the um, experience um, much more relevant and vibrant, especially for, um, you know, we were discussing a lot at the time um, about, theater is it dying you know or is the current audience or the way that you know we conceive of theater now is that art form is it dying or is it fading or is that audience you know all those things um and i this is a question that i had been um you know grappling with in my own art with my peers while i was still in school and you know the the young audience is not going to theater or not very much, you know, but there are all these amazing experiences on film and TV in this golden age of TV, et cetera. So anyway, how, how do you make theater relevant and fresh, right. so to speak? Not that this experience of site specificity is anything new. We're not reinventing the wheel, but how do, how do you make it make sense in Los Angeles? Right. And also at the time, you know, um, the recession hit... And we're trying to figure out how do we make it make sense for us to make it sustainable as well. Right. So both of those things, well, why not try to approach theater making? Yes, there's still a very clear narrative structure and there are still the requirements of the storytelling as um, set by the playwright. 
um, that you have to adhere to, but um, how do you make that experience from an audience's perspective um, fresh and vibrant and, you know, and what is special about theater that's different from film and TV, which is that specific relationship between audience and actor, yeah. right? That they're in the same space and experiencing, having a collective experience yeah. in that span of time. Um, so why couldn't we then highlight that relationship? Hey, there's, I think you're, you're dead on zeroing on what I always felt was the, the, the issue and the problem. I remember in, in the nineties, I, I was at, uh, I was at school, I was at SF state and we had, uh, Danny Hawk, the, mm-hmm. uh, the one, the solo performer in New York. And that was sort of the height of his popularity. I think he'd done like an HBO special or something by that point. And I remember he came to school or, or to talk to the students and he was sitting on stage with Tony Taccone before Tony Taccone was artistic director of Berkeley rap. Mm-hmm. And they had brought Danny in and he was just angry about the audiences that he was getting from Berkeley rep. He was like going off about the blue hairs and how like the ticket prices were too expensive uh, to get people our age at the time I was like in my twenties and, and there were also you know, folks who were 18 and, and, and even younger uh, in that theater. And he was like, I want to do this for you guys. And I'm stuck doing it for, for these old folks. And you could see Tony DeConey squirm. And, and in hindsight, couple of decades later you know i realized he wasn't squirming because he was angry that his star had gone off the rails on a pr event i think he was squirming because he knew he was right and and you can almost see like in you know i mean tony tacconi brought us american idiot right you know like this desperate desire to get some new blood in but it does come down to the question of you know what what would make it exciting for an audience right because just being in a space where you're you're watching people in a box mm-hmm. um we we do that at home right it's called a television right um so i i, I want to maybe zero in on on that you talk about how do you make it relevant for a los angeles audience and 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 that idea and, and particularly i thought it was interesting you know that you hit on you know, the film and television industry, like mm-hmm. a Los Angeles audience is a savvy audience. Very savvy. You know, they, they have a definition of acting that tends towards the cinematic mm-hmm. and away from the theatrical. Mm-hmm. And what I've seen in chalk rep pieces with, with members of that, of your company, um, and I'll admit, like on, on a continuum, some people I feel a little more theatrical and some people kind of hit this, razor's edge of there's a theatricality to it but it's reined in in such a way that it still feels cinematic i'm so glad you said that because um we've been talking about this and even with um our first show three sisters we discovered um doing it that there was a different style of acting that was necessary and it felt so frightening as a performer in it to do it because you're out there and there's audience everywhere you know on all sides and you're still performing a very theatrical piece but it's but it forces you to ground your performance even more in order to really be truthful and feel like you can be out there that naked for the audience well and and the audience is so close yes i mean the first the first piece i saw 
that your company did was Fool for Love. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> that, I mean, Terry, who was, who was playing May, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, she was, you know, at one point she was having a breakdown. Uh, you know, we're, we're about three feet away from each other right now, and that's how close she was to me. Yes. And, and that's... It's like you're getting a close-up in film. It's like, you know, if, if it was a shooting script, it'd be like close-up May having a breakdown, right? But, right. you know, someone on the other side of the room is seeing her at a distance. I'm seeing her in that close-up. Right. And it's it's a fundamentally different... Well, I don't want to say fundamentally different problem, but because it takes, like, the need for an actor to be embodied and have that presence, physical presence... Um, that you might have on a stage or, you know, in a, in a medium or a long shot Mm -hmm. while at the same time inhabiting the role at a level that you would in a close up, you know, you got to bring that full thing. You can't, but you can't be like radiating the energy super far out. Yeah. Yeah. Just having experience. um, You know, I've been in a couple of chalk shows and just the experience, it feels like, I mean, you you know, as an actor, when you walk out on stage, it feels like you're going out suddenly without a safety net. Yeah. But it feels like it's that times 10. <laughs> when you're there with an audience member, you know, just a few feet away from you. Because, you know, on stage, a lot of actors you hear say, oh, I, could, I, I totally lost it. I couldn't concentrate because there was a light or somebody kept going in and out. But it's like, well, yeah. in this situation, the person is right next to you and their foot is in your way mm-hmm. or they're breathing or you're very conscious of that. You know, it's not like you disappear into the play. You're, you know, you're yeah. still a human being who has their senses. <laughs> so, it, you know, that heightened relationship is super exciting on both ends, you know, as the performer and as the audience member. And I would say it is, it does become a bit of a hybrid between theater and film. And, you know, depending on, where it's staged and how it's staged and what the material is, it sort of, like you said, runs the continuum on that. Like, is it closer to film, like in that moment where May breaks down, or is it a little bit more theatrical, like in Lady Windermere's Fan, because we're outdoors and it's a very heightened plate to begin with, so. Yeah. Um, as a director, how do you, how do you create that space? There's, there's, I guess there's, two branching questions here for this one. One is how do you create the space for the actors to find that, you know, tightrope mm-hmm. edge. And then the other half of it is because you're dealing with sometimes with the you know, sites and setups where you've got a 360 scenario going on, or in some pieces I've seen in the flash festivals, you know, the, the audience, you know, clustered in a central area and the actor is roaming a physical space at, at, just as if they were naturally in a physical space. How, as director, as observer, do you set yourself up? So I'll take it one at a time. Let me just, I'll make a note. I'm not, I don't want to lose track of this. Sorry, everybody. I got excited. Remember, we're drinking cold brew coffee. Stumptown cold brew, so you know that we're wired. Um, so let's, let's start with how you create the space for the actors, and then I'll worry about perspective after that. How do we create? Well... Uh, you know, it's funny. As an actor, I used to hate table work because I used to think it was like way too much talking. <laughs> <laughs> but I found that table work is so vital huh. um, to this process um, so that we're all on the same page um, so that we know what 
it is that, you know, what are the rules of the game so that when we start on our feet in the space, you know, and we, you know, we do some field trips so that the actors can start to look at it, um, that the actors already have a sense of, you know, what, what the style might be, what, um, is allowed for them. Um, I always like to say that <laughs> we are um, going to cross the river of suck. <laughs> so there are no terrible ideas at this point. You know, right. we just need to hear all of them. Um, and that way we can vet them and move on to, you know, better and better ideas. So, so when you, I mean, you're, are you talking about like you're sitting down and like you're even like discussing the blocking uh, as part of it? Or is it more like you're going through the emotional beats? We're going through the emotional beats just like any traditional table work, but we would also at some points talk, like we'll run in, you know, if we're not in the space, we might go visit. We'll share lots of pictures about that and and talk about some loose blocking, not sort of where I'm thinking the play would sit or live or move to. You know, so the actors can start getting ideas about that, you know, and where the audience would be sitting for this, you know, section versus this section. And what I found out about that particular location, because you find out different things about the, you know, audio amplification or lack thereof of certain sections and what kind of acting might be required for this section versus this section. So some of that is discussed, but, you know, a lot of the times it's, it feels pretty traditional. How how soon do you like to get into the space with the actors? Because... Oh, um, as soon as possible. If we can arrange um, rehearsals in the actual location, like we're doing with Diet of Worms, that that's the dream scenario. But sometimes that just isn't possible because it's like you know when we did the Flash Festival at Eighth and Hope, mm-hmm. people live there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're selling, you know, <laughs> or not selling but leasing units, right. and so it's a, it's a workspace, or at Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Um, people are dead there. People are dead there, <laughs> um, although they did give us a lot of ge- um, generous time in the space. Um, so we might rehearse off-site, having very much discussed what the space is going right. to be, but you never actually, you, you always right. still have to adjust. Do you, like, take, like, like the Eighth and Hope, you know, you were in model homes, so mm-hmm. do you, like... You know, tape off like oh yeah here's where the here's where the the um the, the cooking island is and like right. you know kind of get like a, a space you know, or it, it would be different for each team and because it's a flash festival and the rules of that game so to yeah. speak are um that each team gets about eight to ten hours of rehearsal oh, so wow. there's not even time for taping we're just like oh, okay it's sort of going to be like this oh yes that is definitely um part of what a chalk rep rehearsal process is like is we don't tape uh, sometimes because of lack of time but sometimes like sort of training the actor to have that sort of fluidity mm, um, yeah is vital even in the rehearsal process so that when you're in, actually in the, space. in the space and the thing isn't where you think it's going to be and then you know you know sometimes in other processes I've seen actors get upset that the table wasn't where they thought it was going to be yeah you know oh yeah they do <laughs> <laughs> so the um, chair is a foot away from it you know yeah well that yeah. that's just that's part of what you have to learn to run with and be yeah. flexible with and in some ways I think that that is also what um, lends itself to a little bit of the film and TV 
um, or cinematic acting. Yeah. And why we tend to focus on a lot of table work up front. It's right. like really knowing your character so that you can, in some ways, while you have a script, while we have, you know, rehearse blocking, there is definitely a feel of improvisation because things are maybe not where you might expect them to be. And it's almost funny because like, one of the reasons why I always feel like an actor as they as they go on, they get trained to become upset about things like, oh, the chair isn't where it's supposed to be because you you know in in a, in a, in a production with a lot of resources, you know, there's a lighting cue and a lighting setup. Right. It's like, it's oh, tight. I'm going to be in this light. It's tight. You know, if this is off, then everything's off. And like we're creating these stage pictures, and the stage pictures are are conveying a lot of it. Whereas in this form, that fluidity, it's it's not as much about the stage pictures necessarily as it is about the 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 dynamic, the sort of like, you know, bolo push pull <laughs> of the performers in the space. Absolutely. Um, yes, it's performer, space, and audience member. And yeah. the audience is so important to this relationship, you know, um, what are you getting? What kind of show are you getting from your vantage point? You know, we have a lot of people who are repeat um, audience members to get a different perspective, you know, and see yeah. what kind of show that they're going to get. So, um, And speaking of perspective, so as how, how, do you, how do you approach that part of it? Because do you find yourself, like I just postulated that, you know, it's, it's less about the stage pictures, but mm-hmm. now I want to challenge that and say like, so for you, you know, but so there are stage pictures, yeah. definitely, um, because you want to work with the architecture, and um, you know, and how how can you create beautiful choreography with the beautiful architecture, um, and make sure that I like to tell my actors, you know, um, for certain moments where I know that audience may follow them or kind of you know surround them, because you know sometimes we let audience members know that we want you to be able to see the action, so move to where you are comfortable or where you can see, you know, for this particular performance or whatever. And sometimes we are very strict about where audience will sit, you yeah. know, with seats. Um, in those situations where an, you, you are not necessarily sure where an audience member might end up standing, um, I like to tell actors, well, you want to frustrate everyone a little bit (laughs) and not the same people the whole time. Right. So in this situation, you know, the blocking is going to be a little loosey goosey. Um, This is your general playing area. Let's see how you play within that depending on where, and then I might stand in a different place and actually um, not to get ahead of ourselves, but you know, next week I'm going to be doing a run, a run for the designers um, and I'm going to use them as my guinea pigs of where audience might end up standing as they follow the action because they haven't seen the show yet. And, and that's that's something that comes up a lot for companies is and, and some of the companies that work kind of farther into the the immersive side of the continuum. Mm-hmm. You know, they're big, and those who work in the interactive side of the continuum even farther beyond that. That's a huge issue for them. Is sometimes this stuff is inert until you get an audience. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we all know, if you're a theater kid, you know that everything changes when you get an audience. Right, right. But this site-specific and this immersive and the interactive stuff really changes because the more 
the more of the agency of how the story is assembled, you're handing right. to the audience, right. the more critical their presence becomes. Absolutely. And it even depends, what, like when we did the show at the Natural History Museum, that some pieces were more um, physical than others in the sense mm. that the actors moved quicker in certain pieces and some slower. Yeah. But depending on which piece, because the audience was split up into four, if I'm remembering correctly, um, depending on which piece they had seen first, some moved with m more of a sense of agency than others, almost like as if they had been trained by the show prior to the one that they were seeing. Yeah, yeah. That's a huge thing. We, we, we come in across that, you know, as I go to like different people's shows, it's funny when I'll see the early adopter audiences you know, they tend to be populated with people who maybe have made the pilgrimage to go see, you know, the New York shows, which, you know, use that expressly as a model, a punch drunk show, you're mm -hmm, totally mm -hmm. walking around. Uh, and then the later audiences who, you know, aren't initiated, as I like to say, they will just naturally form a proscenium for people. Right. And it can be frustrating at times because it's like, no, 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 no. Like, you know, yeah. give the give the performers some breathing room. We're like, yeah. take advantage that you can go anywhere. Yeah. But it, it's just something that comes in time. That idea of like, oh, you know, you're training an audience how to, you know. Right. You're training consume. an audience and you're training performers because sometimes, you know, I remember in natural, they're like, Jen, aren't you going to tell the audience, or aren't you going to have the stage manager tell the audience where to go? And I was like, no, I want to see where they go. <laughs> I want to see where they go, yes. actually. And I want to see, like, how far someone's going to take it to follow the action. Yeah. And so sometimes they were very polite, you know, yeah. they formed, you know, like, nice little coalition against the walls. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes they were really aggressive and ran after the actors. And oh, so wow. that was really exciting, actually, for me. Um, but, well, let's... There's like five different places I want to go from there, but it comes to mind is like, yeah, what is it that you're looking at? like? You go see this stuff. Like, what are what are you looking for in this? Is 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 that are those the kind of experiences you're chasing after, where you're going to get to like run around, or it's, or is that just part I know of the it's so different. I I don't know. I'm I'm weird. I'm like that person who you ask, what kind of music is your favorite? I was like, well, I have no favorite because I'll listen to any anything, and I sort of feel the same way about even this sort of you know site specific to immersive to traditional theater. I sort of love any. You know, good storytelling is good storytelling. Yeah. Um, and then for me, my background um, in undergrad was I went to the experimental theater wing. So I did lots of all that weird, <laughs> crazy rolling around, you know, super, you know, postmodern, etc. <laughs> um, but the company itself has a pretty, I don't know, a, a very traditional narrative that's yeah. in that we're in pursuit of yeah. in a way yeah. that you know there's something very linear about the storytelling that we're doing um and then we're always looking to see how far we can stretch and you know um, that narrative and explore the relationship between audience and performer within that so which is less so you know punch drunk and you know sleep no more where um it's completely you know immersive and choose your own adventure really yeah so where do we want to go um i don't know i think you know for us it's it's really continuing to push that envelope of the audience and actor and getting into probably more 
new material because yeah. we've we've gone back and forth between classical and contemporary plays or brand brand new material. And I think for us, the more exciting relationships are with the new material. And we've started a writers group to see if we can, you know, create more original work for the company. Well, I remember, like, I mean, my introduction to the company <clears throat> as existing at all was I saw, I think it was Ruth had Ruth McKee. Mm -hmm. um, I'm pretty sure it was Ruth, was teaching at California State Summer School for the Arts. Uh -huh. And they, they have this thing where uh, the teachers share some of their work. Uh, and my friend Zay, who actually runs the New York branch of, of No Persinium's uh, newsletter, uh -huh. uh, he's a perennial teacher there. And so I was up to go see, you know, Zay's piece get read and Ruth's piece got read. It was one of the pieces from the Natural History Museum. Uh -huh. And so it was interesting seeing, um, you know, one of these shows removed from its context, uh -huh. but it just hit me full force of like, oh, you know, a play in the most strictest sense of site specific, it's like this piece was written to be performed in a certain space because it's about that space. Right. And that kind of um, that end of the continuum where you're you're enchanting space with narrative mm -hmm. or you're revealing narrative, um, I find enthralling as mm -hmm. a as a concept. Uh, and because for me, at the end of the day, this stuff, when it's working right, endows reality with this sort of sense of it being numinous, mm. with the sense that there's there's something... Magical. Yeah, there's nothing magical. Or, or even just that there's there's you know, there's more going on than mm. you realize. Mm. And part of that's the story. And like, and like space has a story to it. Like someone put Absolutely. that rock there, you know? <laughs> well, unless it's the Grand Canyon and, <laughs> and, you, and you're not a deist. But... Um, <laughs> But yeah. But yeah, and, and, and I think that increasingly we're discovering, you know, we just thought that we were going to do some fun projects with our friends and do it, you know, find space relationships so that we could do it with of good quality, but, you know, and economically. Um, but now it's become this, you know, how do we continue to reveal our town, Los Angeles, to Los Angelinos? Yeah. That's really what um, I think we're becoming more known for and why spaces approach us about like, you know, that thing that you did for that space, we want that. <laughs> nice. So I'd almost end this segment on that because that's <laughs> perfect. But I, but I, but just almost tacking on to this, this the question, like a different version of, of what I asked a second ago. Um, um, what are you seeing? And it can be, it doesn't. It doesn't have to be theater. It doesn't have to be in this immersive junk. Um, but but what are you seeing that that's inspiring you? Like what are what are you taking uh, okay. in? That's that's. What am I taking in? Yeah. Um. Gosh. <laughs> I've been watching a lot of TV lately, actually, with this whole new golden age of TV, um, and um, especially the quote unquote diverse TV shows. Mm -hmm. um, because also part of, you know, forming the company and my own, you know, special interest in it is that, and it being a Los Angeles theater company, is that we are such a diverse city. Yeah. You know, why aren't our storytelling forms more and more diverse, like yeah. Shonda Rhimes land? Yeah. You know, so actually what I'm watching a lot of is like Blackish, Empire, Fresh Off a Boat... 
Jane the Virgin and all these other shows. <laughs> I feel a little sheepish because we're talking about like uber postmodern. Oh, no, no, no. Um, but no, seriously, that's... I watch oh. a lot of superhero garbage, so it's okay. <laughs> I, I, watched I watched, you know, recently I watched um, Walking the Tightrope, by, which was originally done at 24th Street Theater oh, yeah. and then moved to the Kirk Douglas. And I wanted to see that because, so I have, I just had my second child. Mm. So I am really interested in also storytelling that my children can go to because I drag my kids to rehearsal yeah. <laughs> and they're theater kids. And, um, and I wanted to see, I was like, what, what's this show that has appealed to both adults and kids and what, you know, how do we continue to create you know what something like what pixar has done yeah telling stories that appeal to all you know any age group really well and, and that's something i mean kids are so I, i'm not going to give the screen rant for everyone who's already heard it on the show but like I'll, I'll share that with you afterwards but you know kids are so you see two-year-olds using iPhones and iPads and oh, it's yeah. just like everything's everything like right from the beginning. And I'm like, Oh my goodness. But like you, you there are albatrosses now they're the ball and chain we carry around. So the idea of there being live entertainment, live cultural experiences that they can just get lost in, you yeah. know, it's, I know. it's so it might important. be the new thing. <laughs> yeah. Live entertainment, yeah. Right? Everything, every, everything old is new again, which is what's great about this. So. Yeah. All right, we'll, we will come back. We're going to talk in part two about Diet of Worms, and then I'll, then for the bonus on that, I'll, I'll have you, whatever questions you wanted to ask me. Okay, so great. in case people don't want to hear me talk. So, all right, <laughs> and we'll be back in a minute. It was a minute for us, but for you, it's going to be closer to a week before we get to the second part of our interview with Jennifer Chang, when we'll get into the new show, Diet of Worms. Until then... You can sign up for the newsletters at nopersinium.com or find us on Twitter under the handle at nopersinium. On Facebook, we're nopersinium, and there's that Medium collection, which you can find at medium.com slash nopersinium. I do try and make it easy for you all. This show is made possible by the oh-so-generous contributions of our Patreon backers. Visit patreon.com slash noprosinium to find out how you can be a part of that. And coming soon, some special stuff for backers only. You know, just a dollar a month can make a huge difference with this show. And we are just 10 measly dollars away from our next big milestone. Help us get over that hump. And the quality of the audio here on this program is going to take a big stride forward. All right, that's enough shilling from me. This has been Noah Nelson for No Persinium, and I will see you at the show.